Uh, hello, church. My name is Tim, and we will be reading today's passage in the scriptures from James 1, to 25. Uh, you can follow along in your own Bible or on the screen behind. James 1, to 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the reading of God's word second as I take this off. Um, but yeah, as I ins- uh, let you guys know, we'll be going through a series called The Christian Life uh, right now, and we're in the middle of it. And the main gist of it is uh, kind of just trekking through the aspects of the Christian life of what that looks like. And, and what we wanted to do this Sunday is to focus on Scripture, uh, on the Word, on the Bible, and what that means, how you're supposed to integrate that into your own, quote-unquote, Christian life. Because oftentimes I think uh, I think Jay did uh, a sermon on prayer in this series, and prayer is often the most hard thing to do. I think scripture is actually arguably harder, because oftentimes it's, oh, you, you, I, most people at, at one point in the Christian life, even if you aren't Christian, it's an interesting book. Uh, it comes up with a lot of arguments, uh, whether you like them or not, um, it'll challenge you. But the problem often is, especially for those who are devoted to following Jesus, how do you get this to actually work? And you know, like, everyone's, if you've been in the Bible or in the church long enough, uh, you've done something where I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. You read Genesis, you read Exodus, you get to Leviticus, and you're like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm good, right? We all do that. How do you kind of get over that? How do, how do you allow this to actually speak life into your life? Um, I had a friend who, uh, sorry, not a friend, I do still have a friend uh, who's not Christian, uh, and he's, uh, the best way I could put it is aggressively agnostic. And he knew I was going into ministry, and he'd always, you know, just kind of poke fun at me about that every time I'd meet up with him, just like, what are you doing? You're wasting your life. Like, you know, he'd always make fun of me, like, your graduation, your, your graduate education is worth more than they'll pay you. And I was like, you make a really good point, right? But at one point, I remember I'm at a brewery with him, and he's, you know, he's like six drinks deep. He's like getting a little buzzed. And randomly, like, turns to me. He's like, hey, like, you're a pastor. I was like, yeah, I have been for the last couple of years. So like, you, you, you believe in the Bible, right? And he's like, yeah. He's like, but I know you. Like, you, you don't read it that much. And I was like, oh, chill out, man. Right? And he's like, because, dude, if I was a Christian, and you guys think this is the word of God, right? Like, literally the word of God. I was like, yeah. He's like, I would read the bleep out of that stuff, man. And then he turned away profound moment in, in a drunk stupor, right? Uh, a, bit, a, a bit crass, but a, a well-taken point of someone that is not even of the faith, but they realize if we actually call this to be what it is, it's inspired the word of God, does it actually play out like that in our lives today? I'm gonna be honest, even as one of your pastors, it's difficult often to do that because when you think about it, it's a book written for people thousands of years ago in a very specific context that is not of our own, that we're translating two different languages to somehow apply into our life. It seems archaic. It seems old. And yet what we realize when you dig deeper, it's the essential 
crux of the Christian life. And I hope what I want to do today is to challenge us to see that this book is of utmost importance for the Christian life. Look, you can get good preaching. Um, you can sing these wonderful songs of praise. You can be in community. And those are all good things that we have already talked about in our series. But unless there is a personal impact of this thing into your life, until it is part of your habitual daily routine, so much of the Christian life is lost. And oftentimes, what's the problem with the word? Well, first off, one of the most difficult things about the word, about scripture, about the Bible, is we confuse what it truly is. That we don't realize it's a story, it's not a rule book. What do I mean by that? Uh, we often approach scripture like a textbook or a map or an Ikea guide of how to build something, that if you just do A, B, C, D, then I can get to E and I'll have a happy life. But the problem is, for many of us, you might have tried that. Like maybe you were growing up in the church and you're like, man, well, the Bible tells me don't cuss, don't have sex before marriage, don't drink, don't do drugs, and I'll be happy. And you realize you do those things and you look at your friends. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. They look way happier than myself. Because the whole point of scripture is that it's not supposed to be a textbook. And any piece of literature before you read it, until you realize what it is, you're not going to get the right output from it. So, for example, like if, if most of us remember, if you have been, if you were in AP Physics, uh, that textbook that you carried was uh, a book of information. But also, at the same time, maybe you're reading Lord of the Rings. Maybe for myself, I loved Harry Potter, right? For both of those books, they're, they're of importance, right? Your grades is determined on one, your, your own joys is determined on one. Unless you realize you're reading a piece of literature or a piece of information, you're not going to get the right output. For example, if I read my physics book in high school as literature, as a narrative, and the test was like, well, what's the right physical you know, equation for this dilemma that we have, or whatever it may be? And well, in my interpretation, this is my favorite equation in the book. I would fail the test. At the same time, if I read Harry Potter, I'm like, dude, if I just get on a broom and just believe I can fly, like I love Quidditch. If I tried that and jumped off the, house of my, the roof of my house, I'd be in the hospital. You see, what you read, it, it, it's really determined by what you see it actually as, the nature of it, the essential essence of it. And the, the problem often for many Westerners and for many American Christians is often we come to Scripture, we view it as a book of information. It's a map. It tells you exactly what to do. It's a textbook. If I just memorize this enough, I'll have a good life. It's a rule book. If I just follow these rules, I'll have a good life. But it is not that. It is not that. Scripture is not actually a book. It's a library. It's 66 books in this narrating one story. See, the, the, one of the main flips we have to make before we get into Scripture is kind of disregarding so much of how we've learned to read literature or text. So many of us, we read things for information. We read things thinking, if I just read enough of it fast, fastly, a lot of it, and if, if I just memorize all this, I'll be, I'll be content with the information I have. That's not how a story works. You have to get lost into the meaning of the story. Even, even the psalm, Psalm 119, 105, writes this, the psalmist writes, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I, and I love that. Because for me, the psalmist could have said so many different things. In Hebrew, there is a Hebrew word for a map. right? He could have said, oh, your word is a map to my feet. You know, if, if I just follow this, you'll tell me where to go. But he doesn't say that. 
the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. It's a, there's a big, big difference in how you use a map and how you use a lamp. A lamp is active. You have to shine it into your life. A map is passive. You just read it and you gain information. And even better, uh, if you guys don't know who Tim Mackey is, Tim Mackey is a, a theologian who started an organization called the Bible Project, which I highly recommend. Better than seminary education, and it's free, by the way. Um, Tim Mackey at a seminar changed my whole perspective of Scripture, where he was saying, look, so many of us Westerners, we come to this book, or maybe on our phones, and we, we dibble-dabble with the information. We want to memorize things about it. And yet in the Hebrew, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, they didn't have an actual book. They didn't have the technology for that. So what they would do is they would gather in groups, and the rabbi or the leader would actually orally in his own memorization, speak out the book of the Bible that they were reading. They would literally go through Genesis 1 to the end together as a group. It's an oral tradition. And what that was showing, what he was mentioning was for the Hebrews in the Old Testament, even hopefully still today, how they viewed scripture and how we should view it. It's not information, but it's a, it's a reality you enter into. Right? When the Hebrews were speaking oral tradition, it wasn't just something they were reading. It's something that their mind was getting transformed and placed into. That's what scripture truly is. And this is the thing you might think, oh, that's cool. It's a story. But you have to realize for all of us, we navigate life using stories. And I've, and I've talked about this before on the pulpit. You know, it's so funny that the Western life tries to trick you into thinking as long as it's you live in a linear, rational way. As long as you achieve certain things, you'll be happy. But what you don't realize, that's a story in itself. Every human being, all of us deep down inside, what rules you, what, what guides you is not what you know, it's what you believe. All of us, I don't care how young or old, I don't care how much you believe in Jesus or how much you think it's a joke, you all believe in a story, a narrative that guides your life. Maybe it's your career, maybe it's whatever it could be. And you have to realize this, like brands understand the importance of narrative. You know, every advertisement, they never just sell you the product itself. They sell you a story. They sell you narrative because they know how powerful it is. Like, for example, Soul, Soul Cycle. Do you guys know what that is, Soul Cycle? It's just a bunch of people riding a Peloton together in a room, right? Like, they could have just said, hey, we, we're called the group bicycle because that's what we do. But no, they, what do they call it? Soul cycle. What are, they're selling you a story, and it works. And it's, and it's a powerful experience as well when you go. There's a narrative being told, hey, we're in this together. Another example, crypto. I have no idea what crypto is. I'm pretty sure even they don't know what crypto is. But how do they sell it to you? Right, if you we're all in Silicon Valley. If you, if you watch TV or sports ads in crypto.com, they hired Matt Damon to do a commercial. And it's kind of infamous. And in this commercial, it's like, I remember first watching it, and I was like, dude, where is this going? Because Matt Damon's like narrating all these great historical events. The Egyptians built the pyramids. Rome was not built in one day. And at the end, he says, fortune favors a brave. And at the end, the crypto.com logo comes up. What are, they, what are they saying? They're like, dude, I don't even know what crypto is. But let me tell you a story about crypto. You can get rich. Fortune favors a brave. Narrative and story, they control your life. They're important to you. And that ultimately is what scripture is doing for you. 
And you have to realize when you're reading a story, it's not the details that you're concerned about, but it's the message being told. It's the beauty of the, 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 the intent of the author, the director, or the filmmaker being told. And what's the intent? Well, you have to realize the scripture, all 66 books, they're not just 66 random stories being told. They're all centered in one story of the person of Jesus. Jesus in John chapter 5 writes this about himself to the Jewish people who are ingrained in the Old Testament, who they believe, man, if I just memorize the law, if I memorize Torah, if I memorize the Old Testament, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have eternal life. This is what he says to kind of flip the head, their heads on their tables. John 5, 30, uh, verse 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that, they, it is they that bear witness about me. All of scripture is pointing to one grander narrative, the story, the life, the birth, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of what he's done for you. And you might think like, oh, you guys do that all the time. We get it. But the problem is we don't. We forget all the time. That's why every piece of the Old Testament to the New either points to, back, or into the story and the life of Jesus. And that's the story we need to center our own stories in. And when you're able to see all of Scripture through that lens, it becomes so much more magnified and clear. Because you might think, like, oh, man, that's like, oh, Jesus, like, that's such a corny, like, VBS answer. But, look, in any movie with a twist ending, right, and, I, and I've, talked, I've talked about this before. Um, if you watch The Sixth Sense, right, maybe some of you might be too young for this, but I'll spoil it, but it's been out for 30 years, so too bad, right? At the end, uh, Bruce Willis realizes, like, there's a, a kid that he's talking to, and he's a therapist, and he's like, oh, I see dead people. The whole point is like, oh, he's actually seeing dead people. And at the end, what you realize is he's dead, right? Twist ending, crazy. Like M. Night Shyamalan's only good movie, right? The whole point of that, though, is you watch that, and what do you do at the end? Like, dude, i got to watch that again. And when you watch that again, the whole movie is completely different. Completely different. You do this to any good movie. Parasite, my favorite movie. Uh, if you haven't watched it, I would highly encourage you to do so. You watch Parasite once and you watch it again, it's a completely different movie. And you can do it over and over and over again. We do this to good stories. It's the same thing with the scriptures. If we realize the twist ending of scripture, that all of our hopes in the Old and New Testament, even in our own life, point to the story of Jesus, it has to change how we read this over and over again. It's the story being told. It's the story of the greatest story told for our lives. It's a story to center our own stories. Right, look, we're all actors and actresses searching for a script. And the scripture provides that for you. But then the question is, well, how do you get it to work? This is what James writes in verse 22 to 24. He says this, um, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James is urging us to see scripture as a story that moves you into action. And this is the thing. Look, any good story that you watch, the reason why it's good is because it's changed you. It's changed your outlook of life. It's resonating with something inside of your past life. Good stories change your soul. And what ultimately James is saying is you have to allow scripture to do the same. We have to allow it to not just inform us, but to form our souls. 
we can't just learn things from Scripture, but we have to change our own souls through Scriptures. And this is the thing. So often in the American church, in the Western church, we look at Scripture, and what we want to do is we want to read this, but the thing is there are parts of it that make us uncomfortable. So we kind of omit it in our own personal knowledge. Like, you know, I, I always make fun of this, and, I, and if you do this yourself, I'm not throwing shade on you, but maybe I am. But on Instagram... Like every bio, often if they have a verse, it's always about you. Like Philippians 4.13, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me, right? Steph Curry has it written on his shoes. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Jeremiah 29.11, oh, I have great and prosperous plans for you. And yet, there are so many things in the Old Testament that we leave out. There's so many things in Paul's letters that we leave out because we want to create our own God through Scripture. What we do is we nitpick the word. We look at the scripture and we're like, oh, there's parts of it we like, but there's parts of it that we don't like. When actually it should be the reverse that's happening. That the word as a story should be looking at your life and nitpicking things about your life, about your story, about your decisions, about maybe your sexual decisions, your financial decisions, your, your connection with others. It's like, look, Eugene, I, I, I like that you're a faithful pastor at your north. I don't like how you lose your anger with certain parts of your family. You know, I, I like, I like that you, you spend time with your children, but I don't like how often they can be receiving so much of your anger that you can't control. That's what we have to allow scripture to do. It's less what we read, but how we read that counts. Then how do we do this? And I would say this, we have to learn how to read formationally and not informationally. We have to learn how to read formationally and not informationally. What do I mean? Uh, Robert Mulholland, who's a theologian, he puts it this way, and they'll be on the screen behind me. We have a deeply ingrained way of reading in which we are the masters of the material we read. We come to a text with our own agenda firmly in place. If what we start to read does not fairly quickly begin to adapt itself to our own agenda, we lay it aside and look for something that does. Thus, our general mode of reading is to perceive the text as an object which we have control. This mode of reading is detrimental to the role of Scripture as it is not so much a body of information as it is, as it is a mode of being in relationship with God. Scripture is not an object to use. You know, in, in, in grammar, you know, I have to double check this with our grammatical expert at church, but if you remember in grammar, there's a subject and an object. A subject is someone that does the action. The object is what receives the action. So often we are the subject and the scripture, the Bible, the word is an object that receives our control. That we just want to use it to kind of, oh, I'm going to read it, gain some stuff, and I'm good. But we have to reverse that. We're called to make it the subject which shapes ourselves as the object. That's, and look, that's what a good story does. A good story is you, it changes you rather than you changing it. And look, we have to believe that the word is the literal inspired word of God. We have to allow it to speak to us. So often we come with this dry, calculated, well, I just got to read this and I'm good. I just got to get information. I got to memorize this and I'm good. I got to read as much as I can and I'm good. But it's the reverse that we need. And James puts it this way, it's a mirror for our souls. It has to show you, this is your life. Look, this is a story being told, and this is your story you're living out. Does it match up? Are there things that are unaligned? 
Because if, if so, you're missing the full presence of who God is. It provides areas often, theologians say, in need of surgery. Like, dude, if you, need, if you have a tumor and you feel like a lump, right, and everyone sees like, dude, that, that looks like a tumor, and you're like, don't worry. I went to webmd.com and I'm good, right? Like, no, you, you need a surgeon who has a scalpel, who has expertise, and you have no control, but they're going to fix you. That's what scripture is calling us to become. That's what we're called to look at scripture for it to be. Right? Hebrews 4.12 puts it this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When, when the author of Hebrews is writing this, when he says joints and marrow, what he's saying is joints, if you think about it, it's, it's what connects your whole body. It's everything that, it, it's the central parts of your life. And, and marrow, marrow, your bone marrow, it's, it's basically what the Hebrew tradition was. It's the essence of who you are. Scripture is called to pierce that. To pierce right through. And how do you do that? How do we allow Scripture, how do we read this formationally and not informationally? Right, three, three things I hope to leave you with. Uh, one, we have to learn to hear the word rather than come with problem solving. Uh, I believe I'll be on the screen. Yeah, hearing is problem solving. What, what I mean by that is, is this. Uh, so often, uh, we come to scripture with our own issues and saying, like, man, like, I just need this fixed. I need to solve. Dude, I, I'm single. There has to be a Bible verse about me getting a spouse. I lost my job. There, there has to be a Bible verse that tells me, look, there, there's something that's going to be awaiting for you. I mean, I, I have these problems in my life. Well, there's, something's going to tell me that's going to be okay. And look, sometimes it might, but that's not the point of Scripture. The Scripture is the living Word of God. And what it's calling you to do is to come beneath its feet and to listen to God. Not to suck things out for yourself, but to listen to what God's trying to tell you. And we all know this. Like, look, if you're talking with someone, just like face-to-face in a conversation, like you know when they're like fake listening and really listening. Like, maybe you're in an argument, right? And, and you do this too. Like, if you're in a heated argument, you're not really listening. Like, as they're talking, you're just formulating a way to, like, oh, I have something ready to tell you. And you're not hearing anything that other person is saying. And what I'm saying often is we come to Scripture like that. We have something to say, and rather we don't come to hear and be receptive. We have to come to Scripture to hear and not to solve our problems, to hear the voice of God. Well, how do you do that? Secondly... Uh, when you come to Scripture, worry more about depth versus breath. Uh, worry more about depth versus breath. What I mean by this is, this. it's not how much you read. If I'm on, if you've been in the church long enough, uh, oftentimes you get guilty with reading Bible because you're like, man, if I don't read enough, I'm not reading the Bible, and because of that, you just never read. But this is the thing: it's it's not how much you can read in Scripture. It's how you can hear God's voice in the lines of Scripture that matter. I don't care if you read the Bible book, you know, cover to cover. But are you able to hear God's voice to you? And how do you do this? You have to read slowly and receptively. Uh, What I mean by that is this. You know, before COVID, uh, I was a very informational reader of the Bible. Like, even when I was preparing to preach, I'd be like, man, I got to search every commentary Every Google search to the, like, 50th page of, like, what's an interesting fact I can let the congregation know that will help their mind love God more. And that's still important. It's something that I love to do. 
But more and more during COVID, what I realized is I've treated this like information that I come with it with like, what, what can I grab? What can I, what, what can I use to, to speak to you or can even speak to my life? And I never sit down and just allow it to speak to me. And the only way to do that is not worry about how much I'm reading, but how deep I am getting into a single sentence or word. And how you do that, you have to read slowly. When you read scripture, don't worry about how much you're reading. Like, I know the guilt you have, like, man, I, I, like, I haven't touched the Bible forever. That's fine. The Bible is power, powerful enough where one sentence, where one word can speak to you. Don't worry about how much you're reading, but allow space to God to speak to you, to build depth in your soul. How do you do that? Uh, you need to read slowly with silence. So, so meaning, oftentimes when you read scripture, it's just like, oh, on my phone, oh, I get it. You know, forgive one another. Thank you, thank you God. How often does that work? Very rarely. What, what God is calling us to do with scripture, if it is what it actually is, says it is, is to sit with it with silence. To begin, not with just diving into the word, sit in silence, in silent prayer, allow God to speak to you, then read and then sit in silence after. Leave room for God to speak to you. So hearing, listen, learn, read to hear, read it with depth, and lastly and most importantly, read in a nonlinear fashion. I just might get a little uh, nerdy, but and if if you've heard me long enough, you you know I harp on this a lot. But one of the biggest problems with reading scripture is we read it as Westerners, uh, meaning we read very linear. So, you know, in, in any story uh, in a Western, you know, in Western literature, it's there's a it's a it's a linear flow. It's introduction, there's a, there's a climax, there's a resolution and conclusion. Like everything flows in one line. And so often we come to scripture with the same type of mind. Oh, I just got to read this, this, and this, and then it's good. But the problem is when you do that, you lose so much of scripture. So for example, Genesis 1, what is the whole point of that? If you grew up in the church like me, or if, even if you're not Christian, maybe you heard, oh, God created the world in seven days. And if you don't believe that, you're going to hell, Right? I grew up in a church like that. And I went to AP Bio and I was like, oh, I'm having an existential crisis. Like, what am I supposed to do? Because this makes way more sense. Like, how can God create light and then the sun doesn't make sense, right? So for me now, it's like, well, did God create the world in seven days? Um, maybe. Maybe not. That's not the point of Genesis 1. That is a linear reading of Scripture. There's going to be an image that's put up. Uh, and this is just a small tidbit of how to do this, right? Why did God use seven days to, you know, speak about the creation of the world? It's not, you know, often when we read, we read one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, that is the meaning. God created the world in seven days, and that's it. That's the truth. Hebrew people, they don't think in a linear fashion. They think circularly. They write in that fashion, too. That's why the whole point of Scripture is it's pointing to and back to Jesus. But with even with the seven-day creation, well, what's the whole point of, of, you know, God creating the world in seven days? And a little caveat, but I hope this is helpful. Day one, God creates light. Day two, God creates sky and water. He divides the expanse. Day three, he creates land and vegetation. Cool. What did he create on day four? Stars. Where do stars go? They go in the sky. Day five, what, what does God create? Birds and fish. Where do they go? Well, they go in the sky and the water. Day six, what does God create? Land animals and man. Well, where do they go? 
land and vegetation. Do you see the beauty of that? And do you see how you can miss that as in a Westerner just reading, oh, this God created the world in seven days, and that's the point of this text. That's not the point of the text. The biggest point of the text of God creating the world in seven days, what does he do on the seventh day? He rests. And what he's trying to tell his people is, I am the creator of this universe that you call the world. Genesis 1 is not concerned about how the world is created. It's concerned about who created the world. This is the thing. We miss this all the time because we read in such Western linear fashion. So when we read it, we're confused. Like, what does this mean for us? This doesn't make sense. Well, you have to read in the way that's meant to be read. Read in a nonlinear fashion. So how do you do this? Like, this is like, oh, that's, that's really complicated. Also, uh, simple way to do this. There are always multiple layers of meaning in the word for you. If you can take away one thing in the scripture, that's what I hope you can take away with. So what I mean by that is this. For example, if you read, you know, the, the, the prodigal son, you know, Jesus tells that parable. And oftentimes you're like, oh, you hear it once, you're like, oh, I get it. I'm the prodigal son. I got to repent. I, that's cool. But what Tim Keller, if you don't know, he, he made it famous. Well, often we can be the elder son. There's the elder son that is kind of, you know, beached or I guess in English, like jealous of like, well, dad, like, he, he spent all your money. What are you doing? And the dad tries to tell the elder son, well, let's show him grace. Maybe you're the elder son. Maybe you're the father. Maybe at one point in your life, you're called to give grace to those who have ran away from you. The whole point of scripture is you can't just come up with one meaning. There's multiple layers of meaning to it. You never read one story and be like, I got it. It can always speak to you in different seasons. I've read the prodigal son so many times. And as a dad now, I read that so differently. Because I have two prodigal kids, right? All the time. And I no longer identify with the elder brother or the prodigal son. I'm like, oh, I need to be the good father, right? That's the beauty of scripture. That's the beauty of story. There are multiple layers of meaning for your life. Read scripture in a non-linear fashion. Not as a Westerner. So with all that, there's one last issue. With scripture, you, as you hear all this, especially if you don't believe in God, you're like, dude, that's, that's a lot of stuff to do. Like, and that's what James is literally saying. Be doers of the word. Like, wait, that doesn't sound Christian. I thought we're free in Christ. And James ends this stanza with, with an interesting little tidbit. In verse 25, he puts it this way. But the one who looks into the perfect law, or the word, the law of liberty or freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's interesting to me that James says, hey, this is something that you have to allow to change your life. Allow your story to be formed by this story. That's what James is saying. And yet at the end, what James says is, and don't forget, this is the law of liberty. This is the law of freedom. What he's alluding to is if you change your story to match with God's story in Scripture, it will give you freedom. Well, how is that possible? Because the more you read scripture, there's going to be a lot of things that make you uncomfortable. There's going to be a lot of things that you don't want to do. There's a lot of things that talks about your sexual life. There's a lot of things that talks about your financial life. There's a lot of things that talks about how you deal with people who annoy you. And at times it sounds good, but you're like, oh man, that is hard to do because I'm losing my freedom. What we have to realize is our obsession with freedom in the Western sense blinds us to the fact that no one is truly free. Uh, I, I use this quote a lot, and I find it to be very helpful, but David Foster Wallace, who is definitely, he's not a Christian author, but he writes this about just living life. 
in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. This is the thing. Uh, When you come to scripture or maybe just religion or Christianity, you're like, and if you don't believe, or maybe even if you do believe, you're like, man, that's that's a lot of stuff to do. And I don't want to do it. I want to be free. You have to realize, well, you're always worshiping something. And there's always a scripture that you're adhering to. There's always a story that you're trying to follow, whether it's scripture or something else in culture. Like, isn't it interesting to me, to you, that for when people say, like, you know, the whole, the cultural norm is, hey, be true to yourself. Be who you want to be. But that usually means aligning with some mainstream cultural narrative. Like, every hipster is like, oh, I, I'm, I'm my own person. But all of you guys have arm sleeves, tattoos, the same thing, right? You get, we, we all dress the same. We all do the same. We all listen to the same type of music. We all kind of realize we're not actually free. And what we need to realize is true freedom is not doing what you want to do. It's doing what you're designed to do. What Scripture is trying to tell you is true freedom. What James is trying to tell you, what Jesus is trying to tell you is if you want true freedom, true life, it's not doing whatever your heart desires It's doing what you're designed to do from your creator. Like, have you ever tried to make Ikea furniture without the manual? And, you know, I know people are like, oh, you can go look it up online. So a while back, you know, uh, my dad bought stuff from Ikea. And I think this is before we realized there was online manuals. He lost the manual. And I remember we were like, oh, we're going to build this together. It was the most, it was like Swedish hell, right? It's just like, I can't, I I don't know which goes where. Like, we're just guessing. And so often your life is like that if you don't have a manual that tells you this is what you're designed to do. It's only when you say no to certain things you can find true freedom. Because this is the thing, with scripture, there's going to be things where it says don't do that. Say no to that. And things that you want to say yes to. Like, you know, we can talk about like, you know, the the petty things like, oh, you know, don't get drunk or, or don't curse. Yeah, sure. But the harder things like, hey, say no to anger and bitterness. That's, that, that is so hard to say no to. But you have to realize there's a deeper freedom that comes with saying no to the right things. Like, it, you know, it, it, for example, for our, our praise team, like, I, I'm not that musically talented. Like, I can't, I, the fact that people can play piano by ear amazes me. And what I realize is it's not just like they could just do it because they wanted to. It's like they had to say no to certain things and just practice on and on and on. Even in marriage, if you marry someone, what you're saying is, look, I love you. I want to be free with you. I want, to, I want to get into that deep freedom with you. But for me and us to have that, we have to say no to other people and say, you are the only person for me. There's a deeper freedom that arrives when you say no to the right things. And that's what scripture is telling you. And don't forget this. True freedom always requires a sacrifice. Like, you know, history teaches this. There's never a freedom that comes in any country. With any idea. It doesn't come with ideas. It always comes with blood. There has to be sacrifice. For our souls to be free, there has to be blood spilt on the cross. And Christ hung there to tell you a better story about your life. That's what the word points to. John 8, 31 to 32 writes this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, my, the words of scripture from old and new, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth 
and the truth will set you free. Allow scripture to be the scalpel to form you, to shape you, not just to get information, but to change you and transform you. I'll end with this. There's a quote from Robert Mulholland who kind of wraps up. This is what scripture is called to be. If we submit to the scalpel of a skilled surgeon, we must trust him or her to cut to the core of the problem and to remove our, from our bodies whatever is inconsistent with physical wholeness. There is a profound sense in which the word of God is a living and productive scalpel in the loving hands of one who penetrates to the core of our being to cleanse and heal our garbled, distorted, debased word and transform it into the word God speaks us forth to be in the world. Allow the scripture not just to gain information for you, but to form you, to change you, to transform you. Let's not just turn to this to gain more things, but to transform our souls into the image of Christ. Let's pray.